Hey friends, welcome to the next episode of Tada. I'm so excited to bring this episode to you. Um, this is a conversation but that I had uh, actually yesterday with Vilmarie Fraguada Narlock. Um, and she is a psychologist. She graduated from Roosevelt University and she specializes in uh, like she specializes in drug education. So she's the drug education manager at Students for a Sensible Drug Policy. So she oversees the development and implementation of peer education. So essentially students are actually educating each other. And it was kind of interesting because when I had that conversation with uh, Johnny Boucher of Hope for the Day, one of the things that he said repeatedly during that interview is that he... um, he wants to meet people where they're at. And that's one of the reasons that like a coffee shop made the most sense to him and advertising on beer bottles and coffee bags and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, Vilmarie, the SSDP, the Students for Sensible Drug Policy, they have a very similar concept in the sense that they're having college students actually educate each other and they're becoming certified through these programs. And uh, one of the programs that Vilmarie leads is the Just Say No program. It's K-N-O-W. And um, I'm so stoked to have her on. I think that um, it's really important that we empower ourselves with information as opposed to shutting things out that we're unfamiliar with or we don't understand. Because um, I think a lot of times when we do that, the beliefs that we're drawing from um, are old beliefs that have not been challenged in the realm of science and uh during this interview we get to discuss um different scientific studies and research surrounding the use of psilocybin and psychedelics to help combat addiction to opiates and to alcohol and we talk about the ways that um psilocybin can be used to help treat ptsd anxiety and depression so um it's such a fascinating conversation and I, um, I encourage you to have a listen with an open mind and hopefully you can learn something. I learned quite a bit. Um, but yeah, Vilmarie is really sweet too. Like she came over and like we sat down on the couch and she didn't mind that my dog just walked up to her and just like, you know, mid interview. So you'll, I hope that you don't mind that. Um, but yeah, we had a really wonderful conversation and I'm, and I was just like, I'm just super grateful because one of the main reasons that I started this podcast is because I love to learn. I feel like I'm addicted to learning. I just want to, I just want to know things. And I, it's also like, I also, it's important, I think, to learn things that like you can, you know, you can apply to your own life and that you can think through in your own terms. Because actually what was really crazy about this interview is that like, just today I was scrolling through Twitter and uh, like I had I had this interview with her yesterday. Today's Thursday. I'm releasing this on Friday. So I had this interview with her on Wednesday. Today, scrolling through Twitter, I find that <laughs> this, uh, psilocybin has been legalized for the treatment of depression by the FDA. And I was, it was just really cool to see that. And it's just like such a timely thing. So um, yeah, I hope you enjoy this one. And if you're interested in learning more about this outside of this podcast episode, right now I'm listening to an audio book. It's by Michael Pollan. It's called How to Change Your Mind. And um, he goes a, a lot more in depth than we could in this like, you know, hour and 45 minute conversation. But um, I'm really finding value in that. So if you want to dig deeper, that's a great place to go. Also, 
ssdp.org is where you can learn more about Villa Marie. So anyways, thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Ta-da. I'm so excited that you decided to join me today. And Thank you so much for having me. Stranger's house and <laughs> take the chances that the internet provides. Yes. Um, so you started off getting, you got, you got your degree in psychology, but I, mm-hmm. I really, I want to talk about you. Yeah. Because okay. I think that like one of the most important aspects of like getting into something um, like that's like a personal interest of yours and like talking about it is like your story behind it. So how mm-hmm. did you get involved in like exploring and, and trying to uh, change the way that we that we interpret drug policy and the way that we I don't know wh- the way that we treat that within our governmental systems? Sure, sure. So um, I got into it really, I guess, officially uh, in 2009, but kind of like. Going back a little bit, I was, uh, you know, a student in psychology, mm-hmm. um, and my focus was on working with uh, people, particularly young people with substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I had some training experiences where I, one in particular that, I, that I've talked about before, um, where I was in, uh, had to do a. A rotation, I guess we can call it, mm-hmm. um, in the psych unit of a hospital where I would go in and um, use sort of an on-call mm-hmm. situation where I'd go and do a chemical dependency um, evaluation for people who came in um, who had uh, come in for something that may be related to drug use. Uh-huh. And there was... Uh, one case in particular that I think really kind of has stuck with me over the years, and it was a person who um, uh, was dealing with some pretty severe alcohol use disorder mm-hmm. um, and also some pretty severe mental health issues. So, you know, and all of those things are going to complica- complicate each other. Yeah, yeah. And um, was ready for, for treatment and really wanted to get support. And so I was working with her to um, kind of get that set up. And we, we tried to um, go through the process of figuring out, you know, what the funding was going to be for her. She didn't have insurance or any other, you know, means to pay for mm-hmm. the treatment. And uh, so she was approved for funding for four days of inpatient um, substance use treatment. Mm-hmm. And how long is, uh, like if, if, if you are an alcoholic, how long is the, uh, how long is the duration that you're going through withdrawals? Um, about, I mean that. So, about, so, yeah. so, so really like, that's like a, a, a detox is, is all that she would be getting out of that. Right, right. Um, cause she would be in, you know, withdrawal mm-hmm. and she would have to be, you know, it, it would have had to be medically monitored and, and all of this. Um, yeah. and only then would she be able to actually work on, um, on, you know, what was, what the underlying issues were. And so, so it really just like, wasn't 
in any way, shape or form sufficient for mm-hmm. this person. And I remember feeling really frustrated and sort of like dumbfounded mm-hmm. about it, honestly. Um, you know, I was young and naive and I, I hadn't quite had a lot of experience in the system yet. Uh, and that was one of those things that kind of made me wonder, like, what is going on here? And mm-hmm. how, are, how are we failing people like this? Mm-hmm. Especially people who want help, who are yeah. reaching out and saying, like, I really want to get better. And mm-hmm. they're willing to take the actions necessary yeah. to get there. And, That's and a hard place to get for anybody to get to in the first place. If right. Not, you know, yeah. If yeah. And so and so that was kind of like my first like not an aha moment necessarily, but the first thing that was like, this is fucked sorry mm-hmm. for my language but no please I mean, no <laughs> this is a problem and i mean yeah. you have to st- use strong language for your big problems because yeah. otherwise it's like it's hard to communicate the difficulty of mm-hmm. knowing that like there's this huge issue in the world so mm-hmm. you've, you so you found a problem in the world that you yeah. felt convicted yeah to address yeah and i wasn't really sure how to address it or even that i could and i was honestly concerned as to whether i was actually going to be able to follow through with this whole being a psychologist thing mm-hmm. um, because I didn't know if I could handle that kind of thing over and over again. So when I went to uh, Roosevelt University, um, mm-hmm. where, which is where I got my PsyD, I started working at the Illinois Consortium on Drug Policy. And that really came about because during my interview there, um, one of the professors I interviewed with um, you know, knew about my interest in, in substance use treatment and mm-hmm. And also happened to know that there was uh, this institute at Roosevelt that was doing research around substance use trends and and drug policy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was able to connect with them. And when I was accepted to Roosevelt, I immediately reached out and asked if they would, you know, take me on and I could be a you know a graduate assistant. And they agreed. So I was very fortunate to work with with them, and I learned so much. And that's the the uh, that was your that was your first job, like 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 the first the first time that your first foray into that world. My first foray into like drug policy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And so and the director happened to be the advisor of the Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter, mm-hmm. um, at Roosevelt. And she basically Kathy is her name. Uh, basically told me, well, if you're gonna work for me, might as well you know also join this club. So like a little bit reluctantly I did um, and it really kind of changed my life forever. It, like once I started to really see what SSTP was about, I realized that I actually had like a voice and could do something, you know, on a larger scale to address the kind of thing that, you know, was frustrating me mm-hmm. um, in the past when I was working with with clients. So it was like super empowering and really, I, like I said, I learned so much and it was just such a, a like a validating kind of thing where it was like, oh, I'm not the only one that thinks this is messed up and there are other people that are trying to do something about this and I can like join them and we can like work on this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've kind of like hung around ever since. Um, I've, you know, I've being part of the SSTP family, as we called it, has really been one of the best um, things that's happened to me. And I'm so grateful. And it's just, it's, it sounds cheesy, but it's just like such a great, um, been such a great experience for me. Yeah, it's a like, I think it's a remarkable thing when you are, you find yourself in a position where you're able to, um, 
essentially like you use your life effectively in a direction that you feel is conducive for the life of the people that like the people in the world and, and, and like when we were talking and you were saying like you know I like we you found a problem and then mm-hmm. like you found a role in solving it I feel like that is like that is like half of like mental health mm, is like solving mm-hmm. problems and trying to move forward in the world in a direction and like yeah. trying to, I feel like we're all in this herd and like some of us are like get to be cattle on the either side mm-hmm. that gets to like push the direction in one way or another. Yeah. Um, so what in your eyes would like, would um, drug policy look like if it reflected the reality of, like the vast array of like what drugs are and mm-hmm. how they can function in our world. Yeah, I think um, you know a sensible drug policy is is one that's based in public health versus criminalizing. Um, and I think that's that's one of the the biggest factors is is taking it out of the sort of purview of of law enforcement and putting it where it belongs in in public health. Um, and also a, a policy that looks at substance use from a harm reduction perspective mm-hmm. versus an abstinence-based or an abstinence-focused perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's not to say that abstinence shouldn't necessarily be a goal uh, for some folks, mm-hmm. but the reality is that that's not the only path uh, to recovery, and that's not necessarily what is going to be uh, beneficial for everyone Mm -hmm. and so we really sort of need to broaden our scope and and like you know build a bigger toolbox Mm -hmm. uh, so to speak to be able to address the individual needs of all of the people that that are looking for support yeah I feel like it's especially challenging because I feel like when I use the word drugs Mm -hmm. there are so many different like substances that can fall under that name Mm -hmm. so like if you say like oh well like he's on drugs or she's on drugs Mm -hmm. it's like you you could get so many different pictures in your head Mm -hmm. and and, in terms of knowing what's harmful and what's not I think that that's probably as somebody who grew up in the just say no generation where it was like just say no it was like walking into the world uh, like that world and kind of being like well it's all supposed to be bad right like Mm -hmm. this is all like not necessarily a good thing Mm -hmm that's like I feel like that's one of the biggest challenges associated with it when you look at things from like a generational perspective yeah. is like people who are my age like 28 29 years old like we got this form of education that does not reflect the reality and I feel like that, right. that is a common thread within like our educational system mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. the whole well and I think and yeah and that's just it I mean uh so many young people kind of picked up on that pretty quickly that the, the information that was being disseminated in programs like D.A.R.E. And, and the Just Say No sort of campaign wasn't accurate. It was a lot of sort of, um, you know, fear mongering, uh, scare tactics. Yeah. And, you know, when you hear all of this and then have a friend who's using a drug, maybe marijuana, which we were told was going to kill us. Right. And that doesn't kill them right then it's like wait a minute what else were they like lying about or mm-hmm. you know and and you feel sort of like at least I, I know I felt when I started learning more about this that you know they were sort of insulting my intelligence and you feel sort of talked down to or condescended to mm-hmm. and that is not something that any young person responds to well mm-hmm. so 
so yeah, and you know, when it comes down to it, like there's lots of things that fall into the category of, of drug and more people than I think people realize are drug users, mm-hmm. right? Like I drink coffee sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, do other things yeah. <laughs> and, you know, people smoke cigarettes, people drink alcohol, which, you know, I think people consider a drug sugar, sometimes. Like sugar, sugar, sure. Huge. Yeah. 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 But oftentimes you hear like, um, drugs and alcohol like people make that distinction Mm -hmm. um but really alcohol is all wrapped up in that and is actually probably the most harmful when you look at it of all of the drugs yeah um well like it inflates your ego a lot i mean like we like i so like living living near like Rayleigh field mm -hmm. there's a lot of bars around here and i don't i don't drink um i don't think there's any i I don't have anything against it personally but Mm -hmm. just for health reasons and only one thing that I notice is it really does inflate the ego where mm. it seems like, you know, the difference between that and, and a lot of other drugs is that other drugs tend to deflate the ego and tend to like Some can, can yeah. con- cause you to like look more inward. And it's interesting mm-hmm. when you see a culture that that, you know, since the 19, you know, even before the 1920s, but, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years, we've been consuming alcohol and, mm-hmm. it, and it almost feels like a oh, God, what would be the word for it? It almost feels like a. uh like a dated drug in mm. a sense, because it, it's not, I, I, it almost seems like that's not what people are even interested in, like partaking in, in the first mm-hmm, place. Mm-hmm. And it's legal. So it's ubiquitous right. and it's available. And yeah. so we continue to right? you know, mm-hmm. it's, and there's nothing wrong with, with using alcohol or any other drug really. Yeah. Um, the, what makes it complicated and what really, makes a lot of drugs more harmful is prohibition mm-hmm. is the war on drugs mm-hmm. uh, because oftentimes what will happen is there is a lot of shame and there is a lot of stigma associated with drug use particularly you know some some drugs more than others mm-hmm. um, that are more highly you know marginalized or highly stigmatized drugs yeah. um, like heroin or, or rock cocaine or mm-hmm. things like this um, and if someone is having a problematic relationship with a drug because of the shame and stigma that is associated with drugs and drug use these days, um, they're more likely to hide that use. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to use alone. They're more likely to use in ways that are unsafe, like reusing, you know, needles or, you know, other use equipment that can, uh, or sharing that equipment that can, you know, lead to, you know, more problems. Mm -hmm. Or, or using in, in spaces that aren't safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so really that's so many, so much of the harm associated with drug use nowadays is, is more so a, a result of the war on drugs than it is the drug itself. Yeah, because we don't have any, like we, we have no way of actually navigating the waters. We're just being mm-hmm. told not to go into the water. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, I mean, I don't, I don't really think that ever necessarily works. And, and, mm-hmm. it, and it also seems like one thing that I've been like, and I'm, I, I don't know a lot about all of this stuff. So yeah. that's obviously why I have you here, which uh-huh. I'm so grateful for. <laughs> um, but, and, and I, so I've, I've, I've heard recently about things like potentially Ibogaine or, mm-hmm. or psychedelics being used yeah. to treat some addictions, mm-hmm. like addictions to opiates or addic- addictions to alcohol. And how do you, so how do you feel like we could change the way that people like come off of more dangerous drugs by mm-hmm. using these other options as tools. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent question. So one of the things that um, we see with substance use disorder in my in my other job, I um, work to I'm a I'm the manager of training and technical assistance at Heartland Alliance Health. And I run a program called ICOSI. It's the Illinois co-occurring co-occurring center for excellence. Okay. And essentially, um, I provide training, technical assistance, um, other resources, consultation, program reviews to the state-funded and state-licensed treatment, substance use treatment providers, so all over Illinois, Mm -hmm. and with the intention of um, getting them up to speed with integrated treatment for co-occurring disorders. So that's co-occurring mental health Mm -hmm. and substance use disorder. Which almost always go hand in hand. I couldn't imagine it not going hand in hand. Exactly, exactly. So, um, So the thing that I that I th- see happening uh, with regard to um, treating substance use disorders is oftentimes we're treating the behavior mm-hmm. um, and again in an abstinence model um, and not really getting at any of the underlying uh, stuff which could be a mental health issue which could be trauma which could be a, a number of things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think one of the the reasons that we're seeing some psychedelics being useful in the treatment of substance use disorders is because like you said, they, they can allow you to go inward, mm-hmm. um, in ways that, and at least in our culture, we're not used to doing very much. Right. Um, that's scary. Like if you look, totally. like looking in the mirror physically is scary. So doing so emotionally is a lot more ambiguous. And exactly. Like I usually I walk away with a lot more questions than answers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's, there's, you know, a lot of research being done on, on um, the use of, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy to treat a, a variety of, of mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, I kind of see it all going hand in hand where um, it can be beneficial for substance use disorder because it's getting at some of these underlying issues that may be associated with the substance use disorder to begin with. Mm-hmm. Do you find one thing that's kind of interesting to me is I've noticed that like I mean, I'm not, I'm not in this world, but I know with like the 12 step program and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, people are generally like encouraged not to engage at all in any Mm -hmm. kind of substance use, whether it's like psychedelics or whatever. It seems like that's kind of the general Mm -hmm. rule that's communicated. Um, But like from what I've read, um, it doesn't really seem as if like addiction to psychedelics, especially when it's being used to treat like an illness like this, it doesn't really Mm -hmm. seem like that is an issue. I haven't really like come Mm -hmm. across any anecdotal evidence of people being like, oh my gosh, I'm doing mushrooms every single day or something Mm -hmm. like that. And I mean, it it can happen, but it's, it's they're they're very, they have a very sort of low addiction potential Mm -hmm. uh, when compared to other substances. So, so you're right there, there are, generally some of the the least harmful drugs overall and there's a really good um study done by uh, professor david nutt that was um in the lancet about 2010 i believe mm-hmm. and they looked at um the relative harms of all you know a variety of popular substances mm-hmm. um you know from alcohol to psilocybin mm-hmm. um and every kind of everything in between yeah and looked at the relative harms of, you know, the drug itself and then how, you know, other things sort of interact with with that. So how it may be harmful to you as a person, how it may be harmful to other people, how it's harmful to the community, the environment, um, 
social things, uh, criminalization, all mm-hmm. of that. Um, like all of the consequences. Yep, all of the collateral consequences of the use of the of the substance, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, showing alcohol being the most harmful when you look at it in that way, yeah. psilocybin being the least harmful, um, with really the only... Uh, one of the larger sort of chunks of, of harm for for that one is um, like harm to mental health. And, mm-hmm. and certainly there's risk of like having some anxiety or, or paranoia or, or you know, things like this. Um, if you use psilocybin or some people who may have um, underlying mental health uh, conditions, it can trigger um, some psychosis in that sense sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's super, super rare too. So um so yeah, it's it's it doesn't have the same addiction potential. That's not really one of the the harms that we look at for for that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think sensible drug policy would look like in terms of like if it like f- like for psychedelics? Mm-hmm. Because I like I like I I uh, I wholeheartedly agree. I think I'm like I've I read recently actually like in Sweden maybe I think that you would probably know this better than I would, but they seem to have a relatively liberal mm-hmm. uh, drug policy there where they're they're actually at the point where they are like the government is supplying like the drugs, mm-hmm. whether it's like heroin or cocaine. Right. And, and they're finding that there have not been any deaths because mm-hmm. of it. And, mm-hmm. and it's decreased the amount of violence that's happening within right. the country because mm-hmm. it's not something that's gone underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, a, a pretty good example. Like if, it, you know, whether it's the government providing it, that I'm not sure about mm-hmm. in, in our, uh, climate but um but the the idea is that that you know that strips away a lot of those harms if you if you are getting the substance from a known source Mm -hmm. um and know that it's going to be like pure high quality or whatever it's Mm -hmm. not going to be adulterated Mm -hmm. um in in some cases you're you're getting the proper dose Mm -hmm. a lot of the other harms you know are stripped away Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so, so yeah, they are using heroin, heroin for heroin-assisted treatment for people who um, have a heroin use disorder, opioid use disorder, mm-hmm. to be able to combat that in a way that makes a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I think a, a sensible drug policy in that sense is, is making it so, in, in whatever means possible and this is complicated right now with particularly with with psychedelics we're still kind of trying to figure out what that's going to look like because there's sort of like a medical model that we're seeing versus you know other models Mm -hmm. um and there are certainly like pros and cons to to all of these but um it is however it's done that people have access to these substances um in a way that we can ensure the the safety the purity and and um so people essentially so people know what they're taking mm-hmm. right because that's mm-hmm. a big part of harm reduction is like when we talk about drug set and setting mm-hmm. um the first thing is knowing what you're actually taking mm-hmm. um, which can be very difficult under prohibition because there aren't any sort of those regulations in place or safety measures in place mm-hmm. So what do you, why do you think that, um, why do you think that like psychedelics specifically have been pushed under the rug for such a long amount of time? And why do you think it's coming up now? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, I know that obviously it was bubbling up in the sixties sure. and then, you know, some things happened yeah. and Timothy Leary <laughs> went off the handle and, and we like lost a little bit of the ground yeah. we had gained. Yeah. What do you like, what is that history? What, 
what do you think that history and our in the current way we see things as a society, what do you think that says about where we've been and where mm-hmm. we are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, with every sort of major, um, like, policy um, that has banned the use of or say and sale of a, of a particular substance, there's always been like a cultural, social cultural factor at play. Mm-hmm. So um, with heroin, opium, it was the Chinese laborers coming in and people worried about them taking jobs. And it was associated, you know, they, they there was a whole, you know, campaign to um, really like stigmatize and harm these folks. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw it with uh, the Mexicans and marijuana. We yeah. saw it with yeah. um, African Americans and crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, and with regard to uh, LSD and, and other psychedelics, it really was the counterculture. The, you know, with with the anti-war movement mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and all of all of that that was going on at the time. Um, and yeah, it. it maybe got a little out of hand and and <laughs> the government didn't like that very much and yeah uh so so yeah there's always like some other cultural thing that can be tied to it most of the time it's racism mm-hmm. um in this case it was like sort of the anti-war uh movement mm-hmm. and as far as why it's coming up now i think there's like a, a coming up again now i think there's a desperation now we have you know, numerous, numerous veterans, right? And I think that's that's how we've been able to kind of get back into this. In a lot of ways, the push has been um, to treat veterans with PTSD, which has been, it's incredibly hard to, to treat as it is now. There's a lot of research that's going into um, addressing those needs mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it's a huge problem. And, and people are finally recognizing that, like, okay, we need to do something about this. We're seeing that this is beneficial. Like, okay, we'll allow it. (laughs) It almost feels like this is something that's like moving into the middle of the aisle kind of conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because when you're talking about veterans, you're talking about people who like on the conservative end, like that's something that they Mm -hmm. like, that they really want to advocate for. And and from a liberal perspective in terms of just loosening up policies on the whole and Mm -hmm. having more liberal social policies, I feel like this is, interestingly, like this could become a really great great middle ground yeah. if we were to address it properly mm-hmm. but I think the problem is it's so hard to remove that stigma I feel like it's like removing gum from somebody's hair it's mm-hmm. just like every single strand yeah like, yeah and I, and I think you know the people that have been doing the work uh you know the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies the uh Beckley Foundation that you know there's there's so many other different um people that are trying to do the work they've done so really strategically in looking at what is going to be like a good middle ground mm-hmm. for folks so they've gone with veterans for P- PTSD they've gone for um folks with cancer and and end of life sort mm-hmm. of uh anxiety and addressing those needs so mm-hmm. um getting it at folks kind of like tugging at people's heartstrings a little bit yeah um, to, well, reasonably to, so yeah to to address that and, and and you know we're moving into treatment resistant depression people are becoming more and more aware of of mental health and recognizing um that it is actually an issue that we should be addressing and uh and so so yeah i think you know slowly but surely we've been able to identify um ways that we can kind of push push this a little bit further, mm-hmm. um, which 
is totally strategic and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So how, how does it necessarily work? Like how does, cause I, I kind of have some idea in terms of like, uh, in terms of psilocybin and its <clears throat> effect on anxiety and depression and, mm-hmm. and from my understanding and you like, I'm just kind of, I'm going to reiterate this. I'm going to reiterate yeah. this to you. And then you can tell me if I've passed the test because okay. I've, uh, I've listened to a couple of, uh, audio books on right now. I'm listening to Michael Pollan's book, oh, how great. to change your mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like Paul Stamets work. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that, like, the based on these readings, I'm finding it sounds like what the, what it does, it gen, like if think of like a ski hill. This mm-hmm. is the metaphor that I like. Yeah. Think of a ski hill, uh-huh. and if you're going skiing down a ski hill, if you go skiing down the same path, you're gonna be going down the same like yes. divot throughout the entire time that you're going down the hill. Mm-hmm. And our thought patterns can be the same way. Mm-hmm. So what psychedelics and what psilocybin can do is throw on a fresh fluffy thing of snow and then you're all of a sudden able to more freely like maneuver things and you're not caught in this endless cycle of anxiety or depression or worry or you know going back and having post-traumatic like flashbacks Mm -hmm, of things that mm -hmm. have happened in the past yeah I've I've heard that um that before the the snow and I really like that actually I, I think that's a really good way of kind of describing that for people it's it's essentially like we all get into certain patterns, mm-hmm. right? And I think psychedelics help kind of break that down a little bit, help, or at least help us better recognize what those patterns are mm-hmm. and have a have the sort of sense to be able to make changes. Um, and yeah, and, and really, it kind of like gets you yourself out of your own way in Mm -hmm. in a sense I think um you know we kind of all all have that like that thought in our brain the thought loop that's kind of always going that's always judging that's always kind of at least I do oh yeah as a person that trends to anxiety right I love running around in circles man totally totally so what what psychedelics can do is kind of like shut that up a little bit Mm -hmm. so you can have like other thoughts and think about things in different ways and and see patterns differently and feel things that maybe you're um avoiding feeling Mm -hmm. and remembering things that you're avoiding remembering because they're difficult or, or traumatic or challenging um and that's what allows the the healing that psychedelics can provide to take place so how does the psilocybin actually, how does that function within the brain? Because mm-hmm. I know that it can create new neuropathways mm-hmm. and that's a really, like, that's a really remarkable thing. But like how, like on a cellular <coughs> level, how does that happen? So that's not necessarily my area of expertise, okay, no but worries. but what I can say is that um, research is, is finding that there is this like place in the brain that they're calling the, the default mode network. Yeah. Yes. Which you might've heard about if you're, if you're listening to, to Pollen's book. Um, right. And it's lowered, right? The, the default mode network is, has uh-huh. a lower functioning capacity in children, animals, and people on psychedelics. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So that's what I mean. It sort of like removes those filters mm-hmm. so that you can really see and experience things more fully. And those filters being the filter of expectation. Expectation of anxiety of whatever you carry around with you on the day to day. 
um, that sort of like drags you down a little. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it kind of like, so it gives you, it gives you a refresher, but at the same time though, it seems as if these experiences are also anxiety inducing. They can be. So like you're, so you have to kind of induce some anxiety, Mm -hmm. but it also feels like it, it, it looks to me as if it's like inducing anxiety because you, like you said, you're kind of confronting yourself right? and you're confronting things that maybe otherwise, if you hadn't had partaken in that, mm-hmm. you wouldn't actually be looking at the source of your anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think the anxiety kind of comes up a little bit differently or maybe feels a little bit differently mm-hmm. when you're on psychedelics, because I think if you're experiencing that anxiety in, you know, our sort of dual world, you have that filter that's kind of like pushing against it. So either you're avoiding it or Mm -hmm. you're, um, you know, reacting to it in a way that's unhealthy or maladaptive. Yeah. But while you're under the influence of of psychedelics, again, that filter is removed so you can actually feel that anxiety out and sort of like it actually gets processed in your system and in your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then you can actually do something with mm-hmm. it. So, so, and that's another sort of part of um, psychedelic assisted therapy is is the the medicine itself in that session, that experience, that session itself is a huge part of it. But really, it's a catalyst to the overall therapy. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that goes into it outside of just that. Um, medicated session there's a lot of integration that happens afterwards um and that's essentially like taking that experience and kind of putting the pieces together in your life and how you're gonna kind of carry on in your in your day-to-day a little bit differently what changes you might make that kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah one of the one of the things that i read in paulin's book that i was like holy shit struck by it was like oh my gosh mm-hmm. is they had like a I think it was maybe in the 70s because it, it seemed I, I, if I remember correctly it sounds like they were still kind of con, uh, continuing on studies in the 70s kind mm-hmm. of under the radar right. and one of the studies that they did was they had uh, you know they had inmates and I mean I don't even know if this I, I don't, this <coughs> could be done now mm-hmm. um, I don't think but they had inmates and like 50% of them um, they gave them a hero's dose of psychedelics mm-hmm. and um, of, of psilocybin and then the other 50% they didn't and uh, the average retention rate was at around 80% for mm-hmm. people going back into the prison systems mm-hmm. and uh, the rate of retention for people who had not who had taken the psychedelics it went down to almost 20% mm-hmm. um, that is so remarkable and mm-hmm. especially with the way that our prison systems are functioning now that would be amazing if we could reduce it mm-hmm. like by that much Um, But my question is, how do you feel, what are your thoughts on the lasting effects of this? Mm -hmm. Because I know that, you know, sometimes, and this is, this is just like an everyday life. Sometimes we, we are like, we do things a certain way and we accomplish a certain goal Mm -hmm. and it works for us for a while Mm -hmm. and then it kind of dies out. Yeah. So how, in terms of psychedelics, how would that work for somebody like in terms of having a lasting effect? Yeah. I think that's, that's where the the integration comes into to play. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily done after you have a dose, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's more work to be done. And I think that's still, still one of the things that we're trying to identify in the research too, is how long lasting, certainly with, um, MDMA assisted psychotherapy, um, 
so far, what we're seeing is really positive as far as lasting effects mm-hmm. um, of, you know, no longer meeting criteria for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are very, like, specific conditions, uh, very um, sort of ideal uh, participants for that mm-hmm. uh, research. And so one of the things that is going to be happening eventually within the next year or so is an expansion of that study of that research. Mm -hmm. And so we'd be able to, um, apply the, the protocol, apply the, the, MDMA assisted psychotherapy protocol as it's done in the research to a wider population. Um, and, and I think that will help us really see how effective and how long-lasting um, it'll be for MDMA mm-hmm. specifically. Um, maybe get, give us a better sense of, of that within that model and that protocol. I think, uh, you know, what I, I've heard anecdotally from, from folks who have, or, or from what I've seen, um, is that there are some people that never have to do another dose they have really no desire to after they've gone through their their um, experimental sort of process and feel like much better Mm -hmm. and feel like they can function and um you know continue to do other work they're continuing to do therapy they're continuing their their integration work and and um whatever things they've learned is, is going to be helpful for them to cope you know with their day-to-day and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so i think that helps with with the the longer lasting sorts of things and i think yeah right now the the research has been going on for for several years now um and we're getting to the point where we can really see what, what this stuff can do, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. So, um, what is MDMA? Mm-hmm. So MDMA is, so it's not quite a psychedelic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a, uh, it's, I'm trying to think of the whole full thing. Um, we can, we can pull it up in our just say no module, but, um, so generally it's, it's like a crystal powder. Um, Mm -hmm. it can come in a pill form, which is how they use it in the, in the studies. Um, and essentially they call it kind of the, the love drug. It's an empathogen, um, which means it helps you feel empathy. Um, and it's also, uh, helps you kind of like go inward mm-hmm. at, at certain doses mm-hmm. um, and you can feel really good on it. You can dance on it. It's also a stimulant. So it provides a little bit of, of that kind of effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so as, as it's used in the, in the research, it's to help people kind of go in and process uh, the trauma that they haven't been able to process for whatever reason mm-hmm. and um, really opens up a lot of doors for folks. In the therapy sessions, for some people, the dose is high enough where they may get some some visions, they may um, see some things that are a little bit scary, so it can bring on some, some of that anxiety for folks, but again, in a way that they're able to uh, often move through it with the help of the, the guides of the, um, therapists that are in the room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that's generally how it works in the, in the research protocol. And what does it derive from? 
It's uh, all synthetic, okay. is my understanding. So um, it was, you know, created in a lab. And I think, if I remember correctly, um, it was created initially um, as they were looking for something to address a particular heart condition. It was accidental. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the guy found out, like, by ingesting it and hallucinating, like, having it trip is that correct um or no, i think that may have been lsd I don't that know. was yeah that was that definitely happened with uh hoffman with lsd okay that's what it was mm -hmm. but yeah and and i think they discovered that it had these other properties as well and, yeah okay okay got it okay so so in terms of like the realm of like areas that you feel like uh these these drugs can be a, of assistance to us mm -hmm. we talked a little about mdma we've mm -hmm. also talked about psilocybin mm -hmm. so uh in terms of like psilocybin and LSD. Uh, it's, it's my understanding that LSD is psilocybin, but quantified, essentially, so that you're actually able to have like a, a quantified dose. Is that correct? Um, kind of. I mean, you can. I mean, obviously, psilocybin comes. It, it's a little bit the, the way it's ingested, mo you know, most often is from the raw, you know, the material, the raw actual mushroom, mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know. LSD, although it's derived from ergot, which is a fungus that grows on rye, um, by the time you're actually consuming it, it's like either in a liquid form or on, you know, dissolved in blotter paper or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a lot farther removed from the natural uh, state. So, um, so there, yeah, there are some some similarities. Um, I think LSD t tends to be a little bit more of a of a stimulating elevating kind of experience for some folks especially mm -hmm. at higher doses whereas uh psilocybin is a little bit more like of a chill kind of thing so on lsd maybe you might want to uh move around a little bit more and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh whereas some folks on psilocybin are it's more of a chill thing again this is all individual so you may have a different experience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but the similarities lie in um depending on the dose uh you can have some you know sort of visions or visuals that you see um it, they both kind of do the same as far as like you know taming down that uh that default mode network mm -hmm. um and um and, and yeah it can produce some depending on the person some anxiety some paranoia mm -hmm. um in similar ways um yeah wow this is like it's such a it's such a burgeoning area and I feel like it's challenging because like I don't know our system is so structured it almost feels like it's people are using it's like a brute force kind of thing like when I think of our current like governmental system and the way that we function with all of these drugs it mm -hmm. seems like force is like a huge factor in things and flexibility and understanding mm -hmm. is not and, mm -hmm. and I feel like this is a much more like integrated approach where we're actually into like there's potential for us to integrate this in our society in yeah. a way that serves us mm -hmm. doesn't cause there to be crime underground and actually enables us to be able to look inward and face like uh face psychological issues that are evidently plaguing us i mean i recently mm -hmm. had uh johnny boucher on the podcast he mm -hmm. uh does hope for the day yeah i listened to that one it yeah. was a great episode thanks yeah he's yeah. great he's 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 outstanding and, and it's i don't know it's because those organizations are so like important and mm -hmm. needed right now yeah. that i feel like this is like a really important way in which we could move in a better direction um 
but what, what would your argument be to somebody who I I'll I'll full disclosure I was talking to a family member about mm. uh, about the use of psychedelics in yeah. in trauma and uh, PTSD with mm-hmm. with uh, yeah with a family member and we were talking about that and he's like why why would somebody want to use that when they can try and do it without it? Like mm-hmm. maybe through meditating or something like that yeah. or through like a clean diet or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. Like there are certain epiphanies that you, that you can reach like using these substances to have a s- stronger uh, state of mental health. Mm-hmm. What is the argument for using these, um, yeah. especially considering that there are some risks involved, especially people sure. who have like schizophrenia and sure. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the the benefit is, you know, for one, there's a cost benefit if you're looking at it from that sense. PTSD, for example, costs hundreds of thousands of, of dollars to treat just for like one person um, over time. Wow. And, you know, decades mm-hmm. of, of ongoing treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas with uh, psychedelic assisted therapy, they can go through 12 sessions Mm -hmm. potentially and no longer meet criteria for PTSD, which is, uh, you know, at this point it's unheard of. Um, how is that spaced out? Um, I think it's spaced out over a few months. Wow. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, so that, you know, time and cost benefit is a, is a big factor. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reality is a lot of a lot of people who experience uh, trauma and experience PTSD, they've been doing a lot of work to try to address it mm-hmm. um, and have probably tried a whole lot of different things right. um, and nothing has worked. And this is one thing that can work and works so far as what we're seeing a lot better than any existing treatment. So they have compared sort of the outcomes. Um, I think the latest numbers were anywhere from 68 to 80% of, of folks in the studies no longer meet criteria for PTSD. Wow. And I think with our standard treatment, it's maybe 20 to 40%. I don't, I'm not sure exactly, but I know it's a lot lower um, than that. Who, whoever gets to the point of, of not meeting criteria. Maybe they're, they're slightly improved mm-hmm. over time. Um, but yeah, the, the results are like, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Really. That's, that's the only thing I can really say. Um, and I can understand like people being leery or people being like concerned about it because it is a drug. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the drug of choice for, for PTSD as far as uh, medical treatment is an SSRI, which is, you know, our standard for depression and anxiety sometimes, too. Um, and those aren't super effective. Yeah, it's uh, just it's at the same rate as the placebo in most cases. In some cases, point. yeah. And, and so for, for folks for whom that doesn't work and that's like our, our standard of, of care is that mm-hmm. with therapy, um, to have another option is super important. Mm-hmm. And certainly there are many people who, who benefit greatly from taking pharmaceuticals, from taking SSRIs. Mm-hmm. And so in no way am I saying that you should like throw away your, your prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I know many people who are alive today because of them, mm-hmm. you know, and I, so I wouldn't have that any other way. Mm-hmm. The reality is 
it doesn't work for everyone and we just need options. Like I said, we need to build a bigger toolbox and have other alternative ways of addressing these things because we can't have cookie cutter approaches. It's just not a fit effective yeah well especially considering too like the side effects that come along with ssris on a daily basis it can mm -hmm. a lot of, like you know I, i've had friends who have taken them and a lot of times like yeah it's kind of like a mood suppressant like it keeps me up but like it only keeps me like it's where i'm feeling like a middle ground yeah. whereas like uh with these types of treatments it's like you go through it over a period of time and mm -hmm. there's not really like long-term side effects unless you're going into it with a with a you know um a, like a litany of mental health issues mm -hmm. that would prohibit you from being able to experience right. the full benefits. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so what would like, so it's interesting that we're talking about this and it's like PTSD was really like, that's, that's like the kind of, it seems like kind of the gold standard for PTSD mm -hmm. at this point in mm -hmm. terms of treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting because it's like, it seems that PTSD is a very, very severe form of trauma and anxiety. Right. So we're looking at it. That, that's a very extreme case, mm -hmm. but that can also indicate to us that that cases that are uh, maybe less volatile or right. less severe, but like still are still important and need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. This could potentially be an option for that, too. Right. Right. And obviously, you know, they started with the, the most extreme of, of cases because that made the most sense, you know, strategically and, and what, what the researchers were going to be able to actually, um, get approval to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but absolutely there's, there's a lot of indications for other, uh, for other mental health conditions and other things. And, um, and it's just great that we're, you know, coming to a point where we have some other options for folks. It kind of feels like we're desperate. Yeah, I've I've kind of felt that way. I feel like there's there's kind of a desperation that we're that we're having, and and I think that's another reason why, um, why we're getting the the green light to do this research is because like we, we you know we're recognizing that we need more. We need other options. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing a change in the way that the uh, this industry and like this kind of growing interest is like? Are you are you seeing a way that, that it's changed and being perceived by the general public? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think little little by little, I, I see that people are are more interested. They're kind of like, you know, are you know, it's coming becoming more mainstream. You know, you mentioned Michael Pollan's book. Um, after that came out, I know that like our our uh, group here in Chicago got like kind of bombarded with people who were interested or had questions and, and wanted to know more. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's slowly but surely kind of making its way, um, out of the, out of the closet, so to speak, you know, mm -hmm. um, out of the darkness and, and really coming out into the mainstream because people are realizing that it can be so helpful for, for folks. And yeah. Yeah. What do you think are the dangers of it becoming, like mainstream so quickly because mm -hmm. I feel like especially we have hashtags now so when things trend like yeah. they're trending like visibly you know yeah. and I feel like when things like when we start to trend in a direction and I'm I know that like I'm guilty of this I kind of see it, I'm like this is really awesome and like I'm 
I'm super excited about it. Yeah. Um, and I think that we should be su- super excited about it. But I think a lot of times I know I'm guilty. Of, I'll be like, oh, well, it's like you have to eat like an elephant's worth in order to mm-hmm. like, you know, I, and actually, no, it's not even an elephant's worth. I think like one elephant died from psychedelics. Isn't it like an elephant died from psychedelics at one point? But that was <laughs> like the sure. only like <laughs> fatality associated mm. with it. Um, but it seems like it's, it seems to me like sometimes we can kind of like adopt these things and get really excited about them, which I'm excited about them too. And I think that we should be talking about them. We mm-hmm. should be doing it. But what, what dangers do you see coming in the future in terms of when people get super excited and then mm-hmm. we just want to say like, I don't know, it's the opposite of throwing a baby out with a bathwater. It's just like, it's mm-hmm. all good. And we don't really take a look at the ramifications. Right. I think, and that's, that's just it is, you know, people, I think it's great that people are excited. Um, my concerns really are like with safety. Um, because the reality is people use drugs, mm-hmm. like full stop. And they're going to seek out these experiences on their own, regardless of the legality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so my concern is, um, people getting taken advantage of or, um, people, using something without really knowing that what it is um and you know assuming it's mushrooms or assuming it's lsd and it could be a myriad of things we you know obviously we're in an overdose crisis and we've seen uh fentanyl come up in mdma we've seen come up in lsd fentanyl being fentanyl being the very very strong um opioid yes that is Right? Yeah, Isn't yeah, that, that that's kind of getting into the supply and, and leading to a sort of surge in overdose deaths. Okay, um, so we're, it's it's spreading to other drugs, and so I, my concern is is you know people using it without first knowing what they're using, uh, without really knowing what to expect or being prepared in other ways. Um, psychedelic experiences can be really powerful. They can be really scary. They can sometimes be really challenging. They can also be really beautiful and amazing. Uh, but it's important for people to do some preparation, do their research, um, and really know what they're getting themselves into and going into and be prepared. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that leave the country to have experiences with ayahuasca, for example, or ibogaine, um, and it's important to, you know, do your research on who is providing that service, who's, who's doing the ceremony, you know, kind of get the background and, and know that you're going to be, you know, actually taken care of. There's mm-hmm. been some like, you know, horror stories that I've heard from from people that have um, gone to do that and not had very positive experiences or have been taken advantage of. Um, there is some abuse that happens within the, the psychedelic community. There are ego driven people um, that aren't sort of doing the work in service to, to people. They're kind of doing it in service to their ego. Um, yeah. yeah. So I can see that like, even like spiritual leaders or like, you know, exactly like the guru kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yes. I think that like, we kind of want somebody to be able to like hold on to and look to and be like, you know, like you right. have it all. And I think like there can be people there that mm-hmm. are able to fil- facilitate those mm-hmm. experiences and they can guide. But I think, yeah, you're right. Like we're, we're placing, like if you go into one of those situations, you're putting yourself in a position of uh, a great amount of vulnerability. Right. And uh, we don't tend to take that very seriously. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Like the sense of vulnerability. And I don't think that, we take even the vulnerability associated with drinking necessarily as seriously as we Absolutely. should either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is just going into like a, it, it definitely feels like psychedelics are a more 
I don't know. It's like it's like psychedelics would be a jigsaw puzzle, and mm-hmm. um, you know, alcohol is like playing hopscotch. <laughs> so, it's a, yeah, it's a more complex experience. Sure, yeah, it can so, be. Yeah. yeah, so it seems like it would kind of have a different effect in it. And when you're experiencing that level of vulnerability, it's like you're trying. It, it seems like you'd be trying to really um, confront things, and it it seems like it would be a much more in a, like, of an emotional experience mm-hmm. because of the fact that it is used to kind of like uh, what is it reframe things yeah 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 and so so yeah those are all the things that kind of worry me and also the uh, it worries me that people might see it as a quick fix or like a magic drug or something like this that everybody and, should and do. expect that they're just going to be better yeah um after using it and like i said it it takes a lot of work afterward too um, so, so I think people can come into it with a lot of expectations, um, that can, you know, help or harm their experience. So like I mentioned before, one of the things that we talk about a lot, both in the integration group that I help run, but also in the just say K-N-O-W program that I, I run for that. SSCP. I love that. so beautiful. God, <laughs> that is like the most of me. Like I love that play on words yeah, so much. Thanks. Um, is is the concept of, of drug set and setting. And this is really just kind of like an overall overarching sort of harm reduction approach to using anything. Um, with drug being, of course, like the drug, knowing what it is, knowing your dose, um, you know, testing it if you can with a reagent test kit um or other methods uh and you know ensuring that you're not mixing it with other things um or if you are mixing it with something that it's going to be like synergistic and not you know harmful Mm -hmm. um and then there's the set and that's like you yourself so your your mindset um your your physical set so if you've eaten that day you know if you've had enough rest what's your mood like are you have you been sick lately uh you know all that kind of stuff is gonna you know change your experience and then of course the the setting it's where you are who you're with um you know doing a doing something on your couch on a sunday afternoon is going to feel a lot different than doing the same thing at a party on Saturday night. Yeah. Um, and, you know, did you just break up with someone? That's more of the set thing. You know, there's, there's different types of, of experiences that we look for. Um, and, of course, the legal setting, because that, you know, adds a whole other layer of, of risk to the experience and how that might impact um, what you get out of it. So it's important, I think, for people to, to keep all of those factors in mind when they're trying, if they're going to, um, use any sort of substance, um, in order to reduce harm and, you know, get the best out of it really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you mentioned, uh, like ayahuasca Mm -hmm. and iboga, um, those two, I just want to ask, so like when you're looking at, when you're looking at uh, psychedelics and if you're looking at psilocybin specifically, mm-hmm. um, that it, it seems that that is, it minimizes the ego. It causes you to look inward. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like Iboga and ayahuasca can, fa- can facilitate the same mm-hmm. type of reaction. N- now I'm like, so I'm kind of like, 
I'm, I'm telling you what I know. And then you sure. can tell me if I'm wrong. This okay. is like a pop quiz that I'm giving myself. So, <laughs> so, uh, Iboga co- mm-hmm. is derived from frog venom. Is that correct? Uh, that's combo. That's derived from frog venom. venom. So Iboga is another plant uh, okay. medicine. Okay. Okay. So Iboga, I'm sorry. So Iboga is another plant medicine mm-hmm. and then ayahuasca. That What tree is that? The acacia tree? I believe so. Yeah. I think there's a few different types of uh, plants, but it's kind of a, a vine really. Um, and so it's, it's ayahuasca brew itself is actually like two different compounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the the vine, and then there's um, another substance that will that is usually included. Another plant um, mm-hmm. that has like an MAOI mm-hmm. um, in it, so that it oh, actually, it's like a coenzyme, right? Kind of. okay. Right, so that it actually like is allowed to pass the blood-brain barrier and all these other right, uh, right, yeah, so things. Because it's, it's essentially it's it's DMT is the the compound that's producing the effect the uh, the effects. For, from ayahuasca mm-hmm. um and yeah it, my understanding I've, I've not done it myself but it's a very intense uh process mm-hmm. as well and it's one of those things that definitely your set and setting make a huge huge um difference and it's really important to prepare yourself for for both of those types of experiences yeah, one of the things that I thought was really great is that I, I like I was reading about uh, when like certain uh, medical institutions will try and replicate previous um, previous experiments or tre- previous trials, mm-hmm. but they'll they'll try and re- recreate it in a setting that like is extremely sterile right. and unwelcoming, and the patients are blindfolded mm-hmm. and nobody is like walking them through the process in a mm-hmm. way where they're able to fully integrate things afterwards. Yeah, and they're like, oh well, the like the results that came out, it doesn't reflect what you know what you guys initially said, mm-hmm. and and so they're like set and setting sounds like it's one of the most important aspects. Of it this. really is. It really is, and and also just like your expectation of of the experience. There's a really great um, so Alan Marlat. Um, is he passed in 2012, but he's sort of a, a pioneer of harm reduction in a lot of ways. And he did uh, research at the University of Washington, I believe, um, on alcohol effects and expectations. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the Bar Lab experiment. Mm-mm. So they essentially set up a, a actual bar and made it look like a bar um, at the university where they did these studies. And they, um, it was essentially to look at how much your expectation of an experience actually impacts like your behavior Mm -hmm. and how you feel. Mm -hmm. So um, the the studies essentially um, were blinded. So they gave beer to the participants and some of them got non-alcoholic beer. Some of them got alcoholic beer. And what they did is they told, they told people who got the non-alcoholic beer that they were drinking alcoholic beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of, there, and it was sort of like a few different uh, ways that they did this study. But what happened was, and there's a really great video, video um, that I can send you with Bill Nye in it, which is fun, um, <laughs> yeah. where they kind of showed this. But essentially what you see happening is um, the, the students, because they were students that were in the study, the participants, um, they, you saw them like starting to get louder and more chatty and they're starting to play drinking games and like do all this stuff. And it's like, you know, really drinking, fa- like drinking really fast. 
um, and kind of acting like silly and goofy like you would if you're starting to get drunk. And they were drinking the non-alcoholic beer, which they, you know, they were able to, they found out afterward. Um, but it How was that, ex- <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but it was that expectation that they thought they were drinking, you know, regular run of the mill beer, um, and were acting as what they thought as how they thought they should act yeah. when they drink beer. Um, so super, super interesting to see just like how one's expectation even can impact the, their experience and their behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that has a lot to do with like, that does have a lot to do with set and setting. And I feel exactly. like, mm-hmm. yeah, these, uh, I think that it sounds like, like these, these substances should be taken seriously because of the fact that they do have, they, uh, they can be solutions to very difficult problems that we're mm-hmm. facing, but we can't like, yeah, walking into it with the expectation that it's going to be the magic pill or that, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to make us have a really awesome night if we go out in the evening or mm-hmm. like it's going to help mm-hmm. us overcome trauma from when we were a kid, like having those expectations. Right. It sounds like that would be challenging. What? Yeah. What is the most uh, what, what are some of the more like um, like I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say like touching, but I mean, I would imagine if you're in this industry, some of mm-hmm. these studies would be really touching to you, like mm-hmm. looking at like what uh, what the world would look like if we were to use these tools in the proverbial toolbox. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's actually, there's a really good example. There is, um, one of the participants in the, in the MDMA, uh, studies from the, I think it was in this, maybe the first or second, um, phase. I can't remember. Um, but there's, uh, you know, his story is, is out on the internet and actually maps, has put out a couple of videos showing a few of the participants talking and kind of a little bit about their story. And I think that's a really great thing to show people who are like unsure about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so as part of my training at the California Institute of Integral Studies, their uh, certificate in psychedelic therapy and research program. So part of that was a retreat that we did where we essentially just watched a ton of tape a ton of videos from the actual sessions um, that Michael and Annie Mithoffer uh, ad- administered that they did um, and there were actually several really great uh, cases that we got to watch um, kind of from from the beginning from their preparation through um, their sort of final integration sessions we saw like snippets of each case um, over like a span of like 12 weeks or something uh-huh, okay. uh-huh. yep and there was um, there was a, f- a few of them that they that they talked about. There, were, there was one in particular that I know who has like come on uh, and done a lot of different uh, promotion and, and kind of like wanting to share her story with people. Who um, he was an artist, but hadn't really tapped into a lot of his artwork. And um, I'm kind of like an artsy fartsy person, so I think this kind of touched me uh, particularly. But um, to see they sort of showed samples of his artwork throughout like his experience and in the treatment and just seeing how it like evolved um, was really kind of amazing seeing how being able to sort of like tear down some of those barriers that he um, had experienced really opened up this this creative world for him again Mm -hmm. Um, and there's this really wonderful I think just like a pencil drawing that he did where it's like 
it's him like looking at like looking at his own like skull kind of thing I think it is Mm -hmm. um kind of like staring into his own soul yeah um that just like one it was like intricate and like just like amazingly done um but it was just like such a beautiful example of like what his experience was yeah um really sort of seeing himself again for for the first time um he was a a veteran um and so, so yeah, there was a, f- a few really good examples from that training, but that was one that I think stood out to me. Um, yeah. So from so so and when it comes to like, you know, we're talking about like these substances in terms of like their roles in our society, mm-hmm. and and there are a lot of medical benefits. But like it, when we're talking about sensible d- drug policy, do you think that, you know, we talk about like medical and recreational in terms mm-hmm. of marijuana? Those are the terms that we use and. Mm-hmm we tend to downplay the concept of recreational, but recreational is really meaning that you're just enjoying your experience. But of course I'm an American and I don't have time for that. Should I have work to do? So that's like (laughs) kind of like how I feel like we're approaching the concept of recreational. Absolutely. That's why I I prefer adult use uh, instead of recreational (laughs) when we're talking about uh, like the, the different as, as far as like marijuana laws are concerned right now, I Mm -hmm. prefer that. Um, But like, People are still using recreational and whatever. That's what, what they're going to use. Um, but maybe that helps to, uh, you know, destigmatize that also. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think uh, there is sort of like, even, even within the um, psychedelic community, there's kind of a psychedelic exceptionalism uh, that takes place where like, Again, like psychedelics being the magic pill that are going to cure everything and like throw away your your pharmaceuticals kind of uh, approach. And I think there's a little bit of that in that like you can only use these substances for like very introspective, like deep work where like the reality is, is like, but also they can be kind of fun and like really cool to listen to you at a con or to to have when you're listening to music or at a concert. Yeah. And that um, could be a transformative experience. As absolutely. Well. Yeah. yeah. So even like, you know, when, when I'm completely sober, I have transformative experiences yes. mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. So like, like I, I'm not, I don't know what all of this policy would look like, yeah. like coming to fruition, but it seems to me like I don't really believe that it should be relegated to um, relegated to a clinical experience because mm-hmm. then you're you're relegating uh, an expansion of thought mm-hmm. to a very mm-hmm. like you know th- there would be a uh, socioeconomic division between right. who has access and who doesn't absolutely and mm-hmm. and who's to say like who this is for and who this is not like of Mm -hmm. course somebody has to make that call but making that call like I feel like we have to have very distinct lines yes yeah that's a super good like question a really good thing to be thinking about because that's like what's kind of boiling up in the in the psychedelic world field if you will community whatever you want to call it um right now is this sort of like like I mentioned earlier that the medical model versus like you know whatever else is going to look like uh, versus access, you know, free access for for everyone kind of thing. Um, You know, people have a lot of concern about sort of uh, capitalistic endeavors in in psychedelics and how Mm -hmm. that might um, impact how it rolls out and how people have access. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, the, the people who need it most, who may benefit from it most, um, 
should be able to have access and, and maybe limiting it to a medical model um, makes that more difficult. I know that at least uh, MAPS is is con- trying to consider this as they roll out. Um, MAPS, I'm sorry. Uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. So okay. they're the ones responsible for the MDMA-assisted uh, treatment uh, therapy research that's going on right now. And where is that based? They're based out of California. So are a mm-hmm. lot of these laws more liberal in California where people are able to actually conduct these this type of research? No, so not necessarily. So these are um, FDA-approved uh, clinical trials. Okay, so it's on a federal level. It's on a it's federal approved. level. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. FDA and DEA approved. And in Europe, they, they're equivalent mm-hmm. uh bodies are are um sort of overseeing that too um but but yeah so so the people that are that are most in need of this may have difficulty accessing it but i know that maps is trying to consider that as they roll out um sort of the expansion of their um research and both how to um incorporate more providers and more therapists of color into mm-hmm. uh, the actual treatment because it's pretty heavily dominated by white people right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a huge barrier if we're actually going to provide access for, for people of color and, and people from marginalized communities. Um, there, there's a lot of very strong and complicated history um, with mistrust of, of research and mistrust of, of uh, you know, medical providers because of the harm done to to people of color mm-hmm. um, within those systems. Mm-hmm. So, trying to address those those barriers and address those very particular and important needs that people have. Yeah, yeah. Because I I feel like like you have to have somebody to kind of walk you through it, and that's well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Would like would you need? Do you think that like that that's something that would be completely necessary or like? preferred if like if there was a if there was a legalization is that something Mm -hmm. that like somebody would have to facilitate in your opinion or do you think that's something people could do independently i think preferably you're doing it with some sort of guide Mm -hmm. or or sitter uh preferably someone who has some experience and knowledge and what's happening and who knows you well whether that, you know, depending on the, the regulation that we're talking about, who, who that might be, it could be a, a therapist, it could be a friend, you know, mm-hmm. um, depending how it becomes available um, to us. But, yeah, ideally you're having someone else there um, because of all the other potential harms that we've, we've talked about, you know, not wanting to use alone in any case with any drug, Um is is a big like harm reduction strategy um but there are people who also like to have these experiences on their own and and have had some of the most profound experiences the most um sort of life-changing experiences kind of kind of going solo so it, it all depends on the individual for most people i would say ideally you're, you're gonna want someone else there yeah, yeah, that makes sense. When you were talking about that, uh, you talked to you were so you're talking about like the legalization of it and you were like, So when this goes into effect. Mm-hmm. So I mean you're pretty like you're pretty optimistic about this. Yeah, I mean I, I'm I, I think we'll at least have a medical model of it, um, mm-hmm. very soon, at least for MDMA with psilocybin soon to follow. Mm-hmm. Um 
And then we'll just kind of see where it goes from from there. I, ideally, we would have we would be able to either you know decriminalize or legalize all drugs um, so that we can remove some of these barriers and unnecessary consequences of, of drug use and actually again get at the root of of the issue. Um, but we're, we're obviously not there yet. Mm-hmm. So so. I, but I do think at least for, for MDMA and uh, psilocybin, we will have some sort of uh, legal access very soon. So what are you, what would be your arguments? Like, so, you know, what would be your arguments, I guess, for somebody who says, like, this is not me, by the way, mm-hmm. but I'll just play this individual. Sure. You're crazy. You're putting <laughs> all of your, you're take, you're talking about, you know, you you have a background in psychology mm-hmm. and you're saying that we should make these drugs more available to people when we do have a chronic mm-hmm. drug crisis in the world. And you know, not me again, but mm-hmm. I don't want my kids to grow up in a society in which all of these things are accessible because, you know, be, people be, will become more flippant with them. We're going to mm-hmm. see a higher amount of crime, and we're going to because if, if we legalize everything, then we're going to, um, I guess, normalize it and say, oh, well, mm-hmm. it's acceptable. What like what arguments do you have against that? I have There's arguments that I want to argue. <laughs> I, I want to argue with myself right now. I want to be like, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, first of all, um, I didn't say anything about making them just like willy nilly accessible right. to everyone. Of course. Uh, so. In, in my mind, an idea, and this is, you know, sort of my own um, perspective, not necessarily reflective of, like, where I work or anything like this, mm-hmm. um, uh, though I think at least some people would agree with this. You can put your feet on my couch, by the way. Oh, that's I okay. I actually <laughs> encourage it. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So, um, is to have some sort of model where it's uh, drugs are regulated and, and accessible mm-hmm. for adult use. Yes. Um, certainly there are very good reasons, uh, as to why, you know, young people and children shouldn't, um, use certain drugs, uh, because of brain development and, and how, uh, you know, we develop in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least for, for adults, I think it, it makes sense for them to be able to make their own choices. Mm-hmm. And again, this is regulated. So, you know, similar maybe to how alcohol is regulated or to how, uh, cannabis is regulated in some places where there's a place where you go to purchase it mm-hmm. and there are sort of safeties in place to ensure that, um, you know, it's young people aren't able to purchase it. And if you're at a bar, for example, sometimes they will uh, cut you off if they think you've had too much. So there's, there are some things that we do already mm-hmm. um, that we could apply to uh, all of these other substances. So we're already kind of doing this this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of applying it to to other substances. Um, Alcohol is like kind of the training wheels for kinda, this kind of kind of. Like, I mean, I'm sure we're gonna have to feel out a totally different thing. I don't think that we're gonna go to a, like a football game anytime soon and see like you know a bunch of people like partaking. I mean, I don't know, but, but I guess football would be a little bit more interesting <laughs> from that perspective. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so so that would be the first thing, is it's not necessarily just, like, legalizing everything and making it all willy-nilly. Um, so it's a very moderate approach. Like, you're moderate. not, you're, mm-hmm. like, you're trying... It's a harm reduction approach. A yeah. harm reduction approach, exactly. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot more sense, because it's, like, what... That, and that's such a... That's a very good moral way to look at things. Mm-hmm. I think when you're looking at any kind of political policy, it's, like, okay, well, 
what what is the goal yeah you know like is the like if, if it's harm reduction mm-hmm. then let's look in the ways at the ways in which we can reduce harm yeah. not at how we can outlaw the tools that people are using to commit that harm yeah yeah and like right now the approach is like let's bust this dealer that frequents this area mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then there's not going to be any more drugs there no yeah. because there's someone else at the ready you know right coming right behind so if that dealer get, gets busted there's someone else there in two seconds yeah, yeah that's taking over that area and essentially nothing has changed mm-hmm. um so the approaches that we have now uh, of criminalizing um and sort of busting people in that sense isn't working mm-hmm. uh, so we need something different what's the strongest piece of evidence that you find that is like just most convicting to you when you're looking at the way drug policy affects how many people are incarcerated um just that alone, how many people are incarcerated for, for low level, uh, drug possession, mm-hmm. nonviolent you know, crimes, nonviolent crimes. Yeah. Um, that's what fills up our, our prison system, our jail system right now, mm-hmm. um, which is privatized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, of problems with that. And also, you know, that most of those people are people of color mm-hmm. when, for the most part, uh, white people use drugs at the same rate mm-hmm. and they sell drugs at the same rate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure about that number, but I know at least for, for use mm-hmm. um, and any other group. So so there's there's definitely some like racial uh, things happening that are pretty blatant mm-hmm. uh, within the war on drugs that I think needs to stop. Um that doesn't necessarily move a lot of people to make change, however, in our, in our, uh, culture, unfortunately. Um, but it is something that for me is, is important to look at, um, as a Latina, as a, as a, you know, someone who's, who, uh, comes from a marginalized, uh, community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's something that I, that I think about a lot. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated and it's not something that we can get to like right away, but I know that, um, you know, for, for me as a as a psychologist working with people who use drugs, I know that my client isn't going to get better in jail. You know, yeah. like my client is, is going to be much better off if he is able to be around people who support him and love him and have access to the treatment that he needs and the way our system is set up is is not that way. You're a bad egg, so we're gonna put you like yeah. in this building. Yeah, for a while and even and even the uh, even you. our treatment system feels very much like jail to to folks because they they have like no autonomy. You know, they're monitored all the time. They have to like pee in a cup for people, and that's embarrassing and weird. Yeah, um, all the time. And it's and it's like if if you have one slip up, you fail. Right. You know, and that's not Which really is how, not how anything that's works. That's not how anything works. Right. So just need to be we need to be more open minded and think of the person. I think we 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 just sort of like forget the human that is there, that is behind that behavior. Um, and that there are they are complex and that there's a lot that could be going for them if we just kind of give them a chance to to live and to make choices and to you know have access to the things that they need to live a a good life yeah 
So yeah, it's kind of it kind of we kind of t- tend to depersonalize things when yep. we don't like if we don't have a backstory. And there's so many stories in which you know I mean one of the things that like and I, I, I'm bringing this up again, but it's kind of like I'm, I'm in the middle of it is like in the Michael Pollan book, he's talking about like mm-hmm. people who take Iboga, they have mm-hmm. this experience of like, of like they remember when they were born. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because it's like, he said that birth is trauma. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. was a really fascinating thing to me. And, and so because of that, we all kind of like begin our story in a place of vulnerability mm-hmm. and, um, whether or not that like impacts the way that we function throughout the world. I mean, everybody has to be born. Mm -hmm. So we all have that experience, Mm -hmm. but I guess, I don't know. It's, I think that you're right when it comes to talking about the story and Mm -hmm. talking about like the experience of the individual and, Mm -hmm. and why this has so much potential. Mm -hmm. So like we're talking about this in the sense of why this has potential and how the tide is changing from a political perspective perspective a sociological perspective and how you know there's economic implications and racial implications mm-hmm. there's so many aspects at play um but if if this was to become more ubiquitous say like in 20 or 30 years once we have a stronger handle on mm-hmm. on like the function of these tools in this toolbox um how do you think that could change the way our society thinks too because i mm-hmm. mean it does it, it is a mind expander and mm-hmm. um i know one of the reasons that a lot of scientists are like uh, maybe a little bit reluctant to study it is because it feels less scientific mm-hmm. and and there is like the woo factor and yeah, while totally. the woo factor exists emotions exist mm-hmm. and that is the source of the woo factor so yeah, we can't yeah. just ignore that and pretend that Absolutely. it isn't coming into play so what mm-hmm. do you think um this is just kind of i guess fun bill marie like <laughs> what is your what is your perspective like what do you yeah. think what do you think we how could we move forward differently mm-hmm. with this at play yeah i mean i think really what i see is that like we've become such a disconnected society in a lot of ways um where you know we focus so much on like work 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 and uh, on the you know individual needs, sort of selfish needs, and I, my hope is that um, with this research and, and with maybe more people getting the healing that they need, that we can become a much more connected um, society. And that's very idealistic and, and optimistic. I realize, but uh, but that's that's what I hope could happen, mm-hmm. um, whether or not it will happen, we'll, you know, we'll see. But, uh, I think that's one of the ways that I think, um, use of, you know, psychedelics for healing, but also people, you know, reducing the stigma against people who use drugs in general as a whole and like humanizing that, um, experience, I think can, can sort of like level the playing field a little bit. And Mm -hmm. so that's, that's why I like to to talk about the fact that I'm a drug user Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's, it's important for people to see a different face, to to see a different um, narrative Mm -hmm. and hear another person's experience that isn't what they've been fed by, you know, movies and, and, um, really poorly written news stories and, and things like this. I think that's a, that's a big thing too is, you know, journalists have a huge responsibility in how they write and how they depict, you know, these experiences. 
uh, especially with the overdose epidemic going on right now, mm-hmm. um, the language that we use is hugely important. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of tend to like uh, belittle people who are in those situations, mm-hmm. even though we all have like these physical like ailments that, that are plaguing us and theirs just happens to be one that we get to look down on right. and not feel bad about ourselves for doing so. Exactly, exactly. So so there's, yeah, there's a lot I think that can be done at, at addressing stigma so that we can all just like be humans together again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and when you say, when you say an increased amount of connectedness, mm-hmm. do, I mean, is that stemmed, do you think from vulnerability or how does that, how so? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, but, but also allowing other people to be vulnerable, like to us, you know, like yeah. being, like leaning on each other a little bit more. I think there is so much stigma with, with not just drug use, but also mental health, um, that we're not allowed to like feel feelings. We're not allowed to like be depressed. We're not allowed to be anxious. And like, if you tell somebody about that, it's like, Oh, I don't know how to deal with that. Yeah. But yeah, you do. Cause you've had those feelings too, you yeah. know? And I think being honest with ourselves about that is super important. And, and you know, just being, being, open just a little bit more open um you know how many times have have you been at work or or, you know whatever and someone asks you how you doing oh good yeah you know like is that is that really true and the reality is the person asking might not actually want to go there might not actually want to know how you're feeling but that's just like what we're supposed to ask and what we're supposed to say Mm -hmm. but what what if we actually were to care enough to actually want to know how someone's feeling Mm -hmm. And so that other person could actually maybe feel like they could be comfortable sharing how they're actually feeling. And, and you, so you were talking about MDMA therapy earlier mm-hmm. and how it increases empathy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So are, are, do you find that a lot of these uh, substances like, you know, like that we've been talking about, Ibogaine, ayahuasca, mm-hmm. psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, do those all kind of have a very similar effect when it comes to to like our capacity to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. I think there's, yeah, I think there's definitely a little bit of that where you start to see, uh, more potential, I think for the world and for a community. A lot of people feel the strong need to seek out a community after these powerful experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, because especially now when, there aren't that many people talking about it still and there's still so much stigma. It's hard for people to come back from a really, you know, powerful experience. It's isolating. It's you so feel isolating. so connected and then afterwards, yeah. like, who do you talk to? Right. So that's that's one of the reasons we, uh, you know, started um, our integration group, the Psychedelics, uh, Psychedelic Safety Support and Integration um, here in Chicago, we meet once a month is for that reason, just because we recognize that people are going to have these experiences and are going to need to talk about right. it. And you can't bring it up like at Thanksgiving or Easter. Be like, so you guys, I just want to connect with you on this on a really human level. I had right. this experience last weekend. Like, yeah. You're going to be looked at like you're nuts. Like the Thanksgiving Day Parade is on, like the Today Show. <laughs> I mean, like all of the things that we like kind of like, I don't know, the uh entertainment furniture that yeah. we place in our world right. that like establishes a sense of normalcy and yeah. you can't like come in from left field mm-hmm. with a uh you know with an experience yeah because like there's still so much stigma people just don't really understand so uh so that's so that's a, a kind of a, a trend is is 
more and more sort of communities coming together around this and actually like caring for each other mm-hmm. um, in ways that we don't really see so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that alone is, is beautiful and, and I'm hoping we get more and more of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, one thing that I kind of like kind of hoped to see uh, kind of growing alongside this uh, alongside this like path is, is like an appreciation for nature. Mm-hmm. Um, w- right now uh, my husband Matt he he's a bow hunter and mm-hmm. there are like the lowest amount of public lands I think like Illinois is like the third state like the third mm, on the yeah. or, I'm sorry maybe like the 40 so the 47th state in terms of the amount of public land mm-hmm. and um, you know we're, we're reaching this point where we're having like such a crisis environmentally and yeah. you know um, like for instance like one of the things that I uh, heard recently about the, the guy who uh, wanted us to have a photo of the earth. Mm, yeah. As he said that, um, you know, when we're looking around, <laughs> sorry, my dog wants you to pet it. So when we're looking around at the earth, you know, we're, we see it from our perspective and it's endless. Yeah. And it, especially in Illinois, it's mm-hmm, endless because mm-hmm. everything is so totally flat. flat. Yes. Um, arrow, arrow, hey, go lay down. I'm really sorry. That's all right. Um, so cute. So the earth is obviously not flat. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure I've triggered somebody in that statement, <laughs> but the earth is not flat. And uh, but, but at the same time, we see it as flat. So we have yeah. like this endless amount of resources. So the, the guy who initially wanted to get a photo of the earth, he kind of his his like way of thinking was that if we show that our resources are finite mm-hmm. on, on a visual level, that we'll start to have a deeper appreciation for the earth. Yeah. And um, it seems it seems to me like potentially uh psychedelics could be um maybe something you know that happened in the 60s and they finally got a photo mm-hmm. of the earth and, mm-hmm. and out to the public and it was beautiful and wonderful and i can't imagine what that experience must have been like to go from not knowing what that look, looks like yeah to, to seeing being like oh my gosh like i can like see the planet mm-hmm. from like far away um so i guess like, i just i i'm very curious to see what ways in which psychedelics can facilitate a deeper respect for the earth. Because if Mm. we can have that, then I think that we might be able to, you know, broaden our, our sensibilities, not only within drug policy, but Mm -hmm. within environmental policy and with immigration policy and, and not just like on a political perspective, but overall, I think that we could really just broaden our perspectives on the whole, especially with, you know, the fact that it does increase empathy and bring us to a place where maybe we're moving forward in, in a similar direction because we're, um, I don't know, respecting our resources, Mm -hmm. respecting the, perspectives of other people in a way that wasn't as prevalent before yeah yeah I think that's yeah that's part of my hope too and I you know I I recognize that there are for some people who are like super ego driven psychedelics aren't necessarily going to make them less so Mm -hmm. Um, you know so an asshole taking psychedelics may just become more of an asshole yeah Uh, so I think that's something we need to keep in mind too again like you know, just being aware of the, the limitations, I guess, of of this is like even even my own like idealistic, optimistic like view of it of all coming together and being connected. Like, there's always gonna be um, not good people, I guess, that mm-hmm. might of course uh, do this too, and they're they're not gonna necessarily change for the better. So, mm-hmm. I think keeping that in perspective is important, and, and focusing on like those people and those like 
paths that are sort of uh, more forward moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like the more that we're talking about this, the more that I'm realizing how difficult it is to try out the, these paths because it's not like mm-hmm. it's not like implementing trade policy where we make all of the rules and mm-hmm. how things work because ultimately like our minds and the way that like just biology works it's uh like it doesn't it doesn't follow our rules mm-hmm. and i think that that's the issue is we're trying to take all of these things even within the arena of health or right. the arena of drugs when it comes to when you're trying to like jive with the way things naturally go inherently mm-hmm. you can't just car- compartmentalize them and like put right. them in a box and mm-hmm. say this is this is going to function this way this is yeah. going to function this way like yeah. there's going to be outliers and ways in which mm-hmm. this isn't going to serve us and we have to be okay with the fact that we won't achieve utopia, yeah. but you know, with the sensible drug policy, with like mm-hmm. using those words, using the word harm reduction, it's mm-hmm. a matter of like that is moral. Harm yeah. reduction is moral. So it's looking at it from a very pragmatic point of view mm-hmm. and saying mm-hmm. we can't legislate everyone's individual experience. Right. So we need to figure out a way to integrate this in our world that that serves everyone and mm-hmm. and works for everyone's benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Man, this was really great. Thank you <laughs> so much for. I can't even tell you. I'm. I have like. I have so many more questions. And yeah. And if you'd love to come on again, if you want, I don't know. Totally. I would yeah. love to have you because this sure. is. Uh, I really. I'm. I'm grateful that you're here, and I'm grateful that you're doing what you're doing because, you know, as somebody who grew up in the just say no yeah. world, you know, it's hard because we like. I think that a lot of people my age and older Mm -hmm. and even younger, we come to it from a place of of a lack of education. And that's ultimately what really disempowers us from being able to make Mm -hmm. decisions that, um, that propel us in the direction that we want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I guess if you could kind of like leave this with one note, if somebody is like interested in, in learning more about the way that this could function in society in a way Mm -hmm. that is sustainable and that does reduce harm. Like what, what do you suggest that they like do? Where do you suggest they go to learn? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's just it is, is really education and educating yourself and being open to other points of view. Uh, You know, anyone can go to our website, ssdp.org slash just say no. And that's K-N-O-W as in knowledge. Um, and check out our that's program. So good. I like love it. Every time you say that, I'm like, yeah, just say no. Like, <laughs> just like, I get, I get like, I just dork out when I hear it. Cause it's just such a, like, it's, it's the way it should be. It's like we should fun. be learning. We should yeah. be. Yeah. Are you excited about it? Do you feel, um, I'm so excited about it. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, the, the program itself. I, it, so I did my, my dissertation was on drug education and now we're just going to get into a whole other thing, but that's okay. No, it's okay. Um, and, uh, and so I, through that process, I learned a little bit about what young people think is wrong with, with their traditional drug education and what they think should change. And I really kind of like took that in, into consideration for the development of our program. Mm-hmm. So incorporating our members to help with the development was a big part of that because that's one thing that young people said that is important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and making sure that it's like science-based fact-based information that it's like based in reality Mm -hmm. um no scare tactics like 
just the facts. Right. Whether it serves the political, like pushing it to be legal or not, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. Like just kind of knowing exactly what the ramifications are. The the consequences probably is a better word, whether they're good or bad. Right. Exactly. Um, And, you know, knowing how to knowing how to talk about this stuff. So the program is kind of like two tiered. There's a training curriculum. So anyone that wants to become a certified Just Say No peer educator goes through like a, a training process. Um, and there's 13 different lessons and it goes anywhere from like what peer education is to um, how to like listen and refer to refer people to resources, talks about substance use disorders, um, drug use in general, stigma, harm mm-hmm. reduction, um, self-disclosure, uh, how, how to take care of yourself. So self-care even mm-hmm. is all in that. Um, just what is the, what does the self-disclosure chapter look like? I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah. So it's, it's really all about talking about, you know, as, as our peer educators, um, how to make decisions about whether or not they disclose their own drug use in mm-hmm. any particular situation and, um, really thinking carefully about why someone might be wanting them to disclose or not and, and what sort of ramifications, what risks, mm-hmm. um, that, that sort of puts them in and, and how their privilege comes into play uh, being able to disclose or not. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's really important in, in our work is, you know, again, trying to like connect people, connect with people where they're at, where they're at, you know, meeting people where they're at. Sometimes that may require somebody to be a little bit more open than you would be in other situations. So, yeah, that's, and that's the challenging part about this is because mm-hmm. of the fact that it's not legal. Mm-hmm. You can't have conversations about it. Well, yeah. I mean, you can obviously we're right. having a conversation yeah, yeah. right now, but you have to be very particular about the mm-hmm. way in which you converse because it's like the consequences could be you know difficult to people who are in more traditional jobs or they have to pee in a cup every month right. or whatever the case may be exactly i mean it could be threatening to their entire livelihood mm-hmm, and, and it's mm-hmm. and it's difficult that like that i think that's one of the more challenging things about when you uh criminalize an entire like mm-hmm. an entire thing is that like the, the conversation then can't even be had about it. And, right. and that's one of the most important ways in which we introduce new things to society mm-hmm. and we get mm-hmm. rid of them Yeah, is we have conversations about them to figure out what the fuck we're doing. Exactly. And that's exactly what this program is about is having open and honest conversations. And so they go through that training and then they are able to talk to their peers about drugs openly and honestly and Mm -hmm. answer whatever weird question someone might have about drugs because they've gone through the training they have the the background knowledge they have the resources available to them Mm -hmm. and know how to research this stuff in a way that they're finding like actually legitimate resources uh, rather than like whatever they can pull off the internet you know right um so so yeah so that's you know, in a nutshell, that's the the program. And it's, it's, to me, it's like, it's like my baby. It's super exciting to see our students go through it and to, to, you know, do the thing. Um, because it's so important. It's, it's sort of like, to me, it's like repairing the harms of dare and the just say no movement. It's sort of like all these young people had to go through that. And now it's like, okay, like, we're going to do this differently now and Mm -hmm. this is what you need to know. And you can take this into your own hands and help your peers understand this in a way that makes sense. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing what you do and like thank you. changing changing the tides because like it starts it's like from a generational perspective in a lot of ways the damage has been done for yeah. people like who are 
you know, kind of like maybe more set in their opinions and they totally. don't, if they don't want to see the other side. So mm-hmm. starting from this generational, you know, point and be like, all right, like you're in college, we're going to kind of go over this from a different route. Right. It's a huge deal. So thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. SSDP. SSDP.org. Okay. Slash just say no. Okay. Slash just say K-N-O-W. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank this you for great. coming on. Mm-hmm. This is awesome.